This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time, speaking today with the historian Eugene McCarraher about his new book, The Enchantments of Mammon. It's a marvelous book, Shane, but it comes with a subtitle, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And I suspect that that notion will take many of your readers by surprise. The conventional wisdom holds that capitalism is not sacred but secular, the heartless, rational, soulless machine. But you say capitalism is a love story, a sacramental longing for the ineffable. How did we make it so? And why is our worship of money a catastrophe? Well, um, I think uh, just to start, um, I think that capitalism is both a heartless and ruthless machine, and it's also a love story at the same time. And that's uh, that's basically the, the, the very long story that I'm trying to tell here. The conventional wisdom uh, that we've inherited from thinkers such as Max Weber and Karl Marx has been dubbed uh, the disenchantment of the world. This is uh, a phrase that Weber uses in uh, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism and in several of his other essays. It's a phrase that he borrows from Friedrich Schiller. And what the disenchantment of the world has tended to mean is that we no longer believe in the existence of magical or divine or any kind of sacramental forces. We, we, can, we try to explain the world in terms of purely terrestrial forces, whether they be natural or historical. Uh, Weber outlined uh, how he thought this happened in the Protestant ethic. He thought that this was uh, an effective Calvinist theology. Uh, Marx, of course, famously in the Communist Manifesto, argues that capitalism, because it is so, as you say, heartless and ruthless, uh, as in his words, drowns uh, all heavenly ecstasies in the icy waters of egotistical calculation. And so we've tended to think that capitalism is therefore uh, this utterly rational, utterly secular uh, money-making machine of technology and uh, productivity, and that absolutely nothing divine or sacred uh, can possibly even be imagined within its parameters. You know, even religious intellectuals such as Charles Taylor uh, pretty much accept this view. In his uh, book that was published about a decade ago, entitled A Secular Age, Taylor pretty much uh, repeats the Weberian narrative, uh, except that at the end he sort of gives it a, a twist and says that we're in the midst of a kind of re-enchantment. He looks at things such as New Age religions uh, and romanticism as signs of some kind of a re-enchantment. But the problem is, it seems with to me with Taylor's narrative, is that he, as I said, pretty much accepts the Weberian and Marxist account of what's happened. And it seems to me that if you really want to recapture uh, some kind of a sense of the sacramentality of the world, you have to tell a different story about the past. Uh, and, that's, and that's basically what I'm trying to do in this book. Um, how we got to where we are now, I, I mean, let me say a little bit about where we are now. Um, I think that right now we're, in the, we're experiencing the vertigo uh, of an interregnum. 
between a, a neoliberal business civilization that's permeated by this pecuniary ethos and metaphysics, uh, what I call in the book capitalist enchantment. And uh, we're trapped between that and something else, which is why I think that uh, this time right now is one of great danger and turbulence, but it's also one of, of great possibility. Um, I think that when you look back, for example, 20 or 30 years ago, and you read a lot of the business and political journalism of the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, you read a lot of po politicians and pundits uh, like Francis Fukuyama. Uh, they're, they're writing in these eschatological terms about the, the end of history, uh, basically as some kind of a great big liberal democratic shopping mall. You know, you you hear it in uh, in the in, in the writings of uh, you see it in the writings of this callous bloviator like Thomas Friedman, talking about how the United States is now the almighty superpower uh, who uses the the weaponry of McDonnell Douglas to protect McDonald's all around the world. Uh, in a lot of this journalism and in a lot of books written about economics and politics about 20 or 30 years ago, the market, and, and I'm using market with a capital M here, the market becomes almost a kind of uh, what used to be called in the Middle Ages a theophany. Uh, it becomes an expression of, of the divine will and imagination or some sort of a cosmological sublimity. Uh, entrepreneurs and technological innovators and these people called disruptors, uh, they, they begin to constitute a kind of communion of saints, uh, and a kind of pantheon of demigods. Yeah, one market under God is the yeah. Thomas Frank's phrase, right? Yeah, and and he captured the he captured the the uh, the spirit of the time perfectly. Uh, yeah, that's 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 definitely a, a great book to read on this. Um, it's it's a civilization in which economic economists come into their own as a kind of clerisy, uh for this mercenary civilization. And so you have you also at the same time have this techno financial plutocracy that considers itself sort of the hippest imperium in history. Um, yeah, I mean we make of, we make gods and heroes out of the Silicon Valley mining engineers and uh, and the uh, New York uh, hedge fund engineers. Yeah, think back to uh, when Steve Jobs died. Uh, I think uh, this yeah, is I remember. I can't remember when, yeah. but. The 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 reverential quality of of so much popular mourning uh, was was really striking to me. Uh, okay, you know, say what you will about Steve Jobs' technological creativity, you know, God, isn't this over the top? Well, I mean, it's um, the same kind of holy orders that is presented to Warren Buffett. <laughs> exactly, the, the 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 saintly avuncular man of our time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this this kind of neoliberal moral and metaphysical consensus was echoed uh, among evangelical Protestants. Um, you know, which really, when you look at the history of evangelical Protestantism, shouldn't shock anybody. Um, you see it in New Age, you know, techno millennialism. Uh, you can read it in Kevin Kelly's Wired magazine, which is a, a really strange magazine to read uh, for its moral and metaphysical claims about technology. Well, it was um, also in the writing of. You know, I was the editor of Harper's Magazine and published some of the essays of George Gilder, the, the, oh, yes. the, the great yes. light in the darkness of the Reagan administration, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, he has, he, and I, I'm trying, I don't remember the title of one of his books, but he, he compares the microchip uh, in, in one of his volumes to, uh, he compares it to the Eucharist. Yeah, I know. Which, right. 
<laughs> it's just it's just insane on one level, but it's 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 par for the course if if you have uh, an enchanted capitalist metaphysic or or ethic. But even after two thousand and eight, um, you know, when the satisfaction with this neoliberal order or neoliberal enchantment um, has spread so widely and so uh, so virulently, capital is more firmly entrenched than ever. Uh, and I and I think we really have yet to to really break the spell of pecuniary uh, ethics and metaphysics. Um, no, I don't. And, I don't, I don't oh, think so. Go ahead. No, I think that you're right. I, I think most Americans still believe that money is God. And this is a long time in coming. <laughs> Um, I think this begins, uh, really, I mean, I think this begins in, in 17th, 16th, 17th century England uh, with the Puritans, uh, who really do uh, have this kind of covenant theology of capital, uh, if you want to call it that, that uh, God, money is a sign, well, money and wealth are signs of God's benediction uh, upon the elect. And also, and this, this I think is also crucial, that it's possible to build what the Puritans thought of as a beloved community on capitalist property relations. Uh, this is a belief that you see throughout American history, you know, beginning with the Puritans and I think all the way up to the 21st century. Um, yeah, the Puritan, what I call the Puritan errand into the marketplace uh, is, is an example of this. That's kind of a riff on Perry Miller's errand into the wilderness. The Puritans, I think, were, were very divided about this. They were very ambivalent about money and wealth. On the one hand, you see these very traditional kind of Christian strictures against usury, against avarice, uh, and against uh, constant, uh, never-ending accumulation. But at the same time, the Puritans are also asserting that, as one minister uh, put it in the 1620s, that, quote, religion and profit jumped together. And uh, this kind of ambivalence is epitomized in somebody like uh, this one Puritan merchant named Robert Kane, who was brought before the Massachusetts magistrates in the 1630s for charging too much for goods. You know, he was also suspected of being something of a usurer. And um, he later, about 10 or 15 years later, uh, wrote this screed, very long screed, in which he basically says to the Puritan magistrates and ministers, uh, look, I don't see why where you guys get off uh, bringing hauling me before the court because I'm just doing what you're encouraging everybody else to do, which is make money and demonstrate that I have God's uh, God's blessing, and these are simply the tokens of of that blessing. Um, so I think the Puritans were deeply divided about this, but over time, uh, especially as the Puritans became more successful, as they became much more enmeshed in the whole transatlantic uh, commercial nexus with with Britain. Um, these this ambivalence really kind of atrophies, and and they become much much more comfortable with money making. Um, they do try to tell themselves that they're not really that avaricious. I mean, this is the origin, I think, of some what's been called the Jeremiah uh, tradition. You know, the the idea that that this is a sermon form that uh, Puritans would often use. First, you talk about the vision of a city on a hill uh, where, you know, as, as John Winthrop lays it out in the Arbella, you know, this is going to be a beloved community. Uh, it's going to be a, a paternalist and hierarchical community. You're going to have rich and poor, but it's still going to be a beloved community. We're going to take care of each other. 
And then the second part of the Jeremiah is called the declension. And this, uh, in the declension, this is the part where, oh, we have, we have strayed from the ways of righteousness because we've become rich and we've gotten soft and we've become luxurious. Uh, and then you have the third part, which is the confession of sin, you know, beat our breasts and tell ourselves what, uh, what avaricious people what? we've been. And then we rededicate ourselves to the original vision. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most Puritan servants came, and the preacher was rubbing tears out of his eyes <laughs> to, to express his sadness at the wickedness of the world. While he was while he was yeah. taking coins from his congregation, it, yes, uh, and, 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 and making is... sharp real estate deals with drunken Pequot Indians, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> This is this to me is I think the fundamental problem with the whole Jeremiah. I mean, the the Jeremiah as a form, as a cultural form, has persisted throughout American history, but in the in the Puritan uh, iteration, it seems to me that the problem is the the Jeremiah is basically a way to evade the magnitude of the contradiction that's inherent in the original vision, which was you can build a beloved community on capitalist property relations, and so the Jeremiah is basically a way to to simply obscure that truth from yourself. Um, so the, the, the next big phase, uh, of capitalist enchantment in America, at least is, is the evangelical, uh, dispensation, the antebellum, uh, evangelical dispensation where the, you really get a much more robust and, uh, unambivalent sense that God has created a cosmology in which, uh, you know, money is, is a token of virtue in which competitive relations are very compatible with uh, beloved community, you don't get as much um, you don't get as much second guessing. You don't get as much examination of conscience about avarice uh, among evangelicals. It's a much more robustly uh, enchanted form of capitalism that you get with evangelicals. You see this in evangelical business journalism. Uh, you see it in uh, evangelical sermons. Uh, you even see it among the Mormons, uh, which is, you know, one of the most utterly pecuniary theologies imaginable. Um, Chris Lehman, I have to I have to recommend his book, The Money Cult, has, has a great section on the Mormons, uh, from which I learned a great deal. Uh, but there's a reason why Mormons don't want to talk so much about <laughs> about their theology, because uh, it's so utterly mercenary uh, in its in its form and and its character. Uh, so the 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 next stage is the after the corporate reconstruction of of capitalism during the Gilded Age, um, the godly proprietor is replaced by what even at the time is called the soulful corporation. You have a tremendous amount of discussion in the late 19th century and early 20th century about whether or not corporations have souls, right? The Supreme Court decided uh, in, uh, in 1886 that they, that they were people uh, in, a, in what can't even really be called a decision. It, it was really more a, a kind of a diktat <laughs> by, the, by the Supreme Court. Um, but once they were called people, they, they, there was a tremendous amount of controversy over whether they actually had souls. So you had populist writers, um, such as, uh, I love this guy's name, Cyclone Davis, are arguing that, um, no, corporations don't have souls. You know, they're not even really people, but they, they definitely don't have souls. Well, so somebody calls them vessels of the divine. 
Yeah, that's, <laughs> that would be public relations folks. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the early public the uh, a lot of the early history of the public relations industry is about creating the soulful corporation uh, through public relations, through advertising imagery. Uh, through all all kinds of marketing strategies, and uh, they're they're fairly successful in in getting, you know, this formerly soulless leviathan to be your basically, you know, your your friendly neighborhood behemoth who provides you with all sorts of wonderful services. Um, and, and also, again, uh, yeah, also wonderful, wonderful consumer goods, and and you, so you inject into all manner of consumer goods, the blood and body of Christ, right? Well, when these consumer goods are uh, advertised to you in in increasingly, you know, in, again, enchanted uh, ways, they're not just commodities. They are ways in which you can be your best self. Uh, there are ways in which you can connect with the divine. You can you can achieve a kind of existential excellence through these commodities. Uh, one of H.G. Wells' great novels, Tona Bungay, is, is about this whole process of how advertisers often think of themselves as these artists. They even think of themselves as sort of spiritual craftsmen uh, throughout the 20th century. Uh, not exactly what we think Don Draper was, but that's what, that's what these early ad men thought uh, about themselves. You also see this in the, the Soulful Corporation in uh, management theory, which you know we usually think of as being a very dullard kind of literature, but but it, and it is often. I read through a lot of it. It was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. And um, you see this concern with beloved community and and spiritual communion in even in something like Frederick Taylor's Scientific Management. Uh, you see it in the fact that a lot of uh, the people who joined the scientific management movement considered uh, Taylor almost to be a kind of messiah. You know, they call himself, they call themselves uh, his disciples. Many of them, they liken scientific management to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you read this and it's so over the top that it's laughable. But they, they took this seriously. Uh, you know, they, they really thought that you could use managerial expertise. Uh, and social science expertise to achieve this kind of, as I say, beloved community in the workplace. Well, uh, talk about the Bruce Barton book, The Man Nobody Knows, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Barton, um, son, of a, son of a minister, uh, very, you know, very important fact to, to remember. Uh, yeah, The Man Nobody Knows, you know, he sees Jesus as the... Well, he's um, an advertising guy. He's a, he's the yeah, big, an advertising guy, right. Uh, BBDO, I think was the BBD was, was the original name of the company. Yeah. He depicts Jesus as basically the greatest, uh, CEO in history. Uh, you know, he took 12, 12, basically rootless, rootless guys. And my God created the greatest organization in history, the Christian church. Uh, he depicts uh, Jesus in the temple as basically looking at being, quote, about his father's business, and he means business. Um, yeah, Bruce Barton's The Man Nobody Knows is a, is a, is a very revelatory text uh, about what's going on, not just with consumer culture, but with this, uh, this notion that corporate society can itself have a soul, that, that there really is a, 
that there really is no contradiction between pecuniary accumulation and um, and Christian Christian values, the Christian ethos, uh, and this persists even into the into the Fordist era or you know the Machine Age, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, um, where why you you have various corporate the corporate intelligentsia trying to construct what what I call a heavenly city of Fordism. You have um, you have guys like Henry Ford even writing that that the machine is now a new kind of messiah, and that the the uh, the sort of moral and spiritual guidance that was once provided by religion will now have to be provided by business. Uh, Ford explicitly says this, as does uh, probably the greatest advertising theorist of the age, Ernest Elmo Calkins, says much the same thing in Business the Civilizer, a uh, book that he published in 1928. Well, he yeah, very but... explicitly says that, you know, business is going to inherit the uh, the job that was once done by government and religion. Well, I mean, yeah. Flat I... out says it. <laughs> But, but but also, I mean, Henry Adams says almost the same thing, looking at the Dynamo and the Paris Exposition, right? Yes, yeah. That um, when when Henry Adams uh, writes about that, he's very very fearful about what's coming. Uh, the Dynamo is basically going to take over the spiritual and moral place that was once uh, attributed to Christ and the Virgin and Saint Francis, for that matter. Now. The problem for Adams was that, as Jackson Lears once called him, he was an anti-modern modernist. You know, he himself was so ambivalent about what was happening, because on the one hand, he he rooted, he really feared what was coming, but at the same time, he didn't see any sort of spiritual or political forces that could possibly avert it. So, um, stop there for a moment. I mean, yeah, have we ever managed to develop? spiritual forces that could avert it well i, I mean think isn't that where we are now i mean i mean we're still trying to find forces to avert it we are and that's why a great deal of my book is devoted to uh the opponents of the dynamo uh you know the opponents of of capitalist enchantment who my I put under the canopy of capital R romanticism, uh, going stretching all the way back to again 19th century Britain, but extending all the way into the 1960s and the 1970s in uh, various people in the civil rights movement, in the counterculture uh, figures such as Thomas Merton and uh, the the poet and critic Kenneth Rexroth. Even I, I would include even the the uh, the great psychoanalytical. Moralist, I'd, I'd want to call him Norman O. Brown, uh, and and figures such as even Herbert Marcuse are 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 included in this romantic tradition. I think the romantic tradition is uh, it's basically the modern idiom of of the sacramental consciousness of of medieval Christianity. You know, you see it. It's it's the belief that there is that 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 the material world and social relations really can convey divine grace. Um, you see it as early in, as somebody in, like William Blake, who's talking about how you can hold eternity in the palm of your hand. You see it uh, in Wordsworth, right? I mean, uh, you see it in Wordsworth, yes. And the, the sense you know, sublime, you know, of something far more deeply interfused. I think, I think the line is. Uh, now, this takes it takes form the form of social criticism in in figures such as Thomas Carlyle and John Ruskin, who's one of the heroes of the book, uh, William Morris. 
and in America, it 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 takes uh, you you see it in uh, figures such as I I argue, for example, that Nat Turner uh, in the Religion of the Slaves was uh, its its own kind of romantic idiom uh, in the United States. You but, see it in Nat Turner's Confessions. Uh, you see it in uh, figures such as William James. You see it in uh, John Muir and in some social gospel figures such as Vita Dutton Scudder. I think it's exemplified in James Agee. Uh, I think that Let Us Now Praise Famous Men is is a romantic uh, document uh, inveighing against the depredations of capitalism. And I think you see it in, um, in figure, as I said, figures later on such as Rex Roth and Merton. And, what, what, uh, what, what about... What about in Fitzgerald? How do you see The Great Gatsby? I see The Great Gatsby as a kind of sacramental novel. Uh, There's a lot of reference in there to enchantment. There's a lot of reference there to magic. Uh, And Fitzgerald himself, being something of an apostate Catholic, would have brought a a sacramental sensibility to looking at, uh, at the 1920s. I, I mean, just just as a kind of a side note, I mean, to to illustrate this, I actually think that the much maligned um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio version of that film was much better than Robert Redford's, and the reason why is that I think it was much gaudier, but it was it also I think captured better that that sense of the sacramentality of things that Fitzgerald I think is trying to to convey in that novel. Uh, that's that's just you know offhand film criticism. If, if your listeners are interested, um, so I do think that there has been a lineage of of romantic opposition to capitalism. But the problem, of course, is that it has never been able to gain enough political purchase uh, or political strength to uh, avert or or modify any of this. Yeah, I mean, there's been the arts and crafts. Movement in oh the, yes, uh, yes. You know, there's. I should that. mention them as well. Yeah, the arts and crafts movement in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, inspired by Ruskin and Morris, but it has its own. Uh, it has its own heroes. Uh, people like Horace Traubel, uh People who uh, who make these little arts and crafts communities, like Rose Valley outside of uh, Philadelphia, New Clairvaux in uh, I think it was Montague, Massachusetts. So you had a lot of these little communities. Um, which are trying to practice a kind of uh, sacramental craftsmanship uh, in opposition to mechanization and mass production. But the problem even there was that eventually they succumb to the forces of the market, and they become in their in various ways assimilated to, uh, yeah, to yeah, capitalist the, industrialism. Yeah, the corporation co-ops Bohemia. Yeah, which which they've been doing from the beginning. Uh, this isn't uh, this, this isn't uh, something that you just see with uh, the 1960s. That you know something that Tom Frank called the conquest of cool. Yeah, this this goes back all the way to people like uh, Albert Hubbard in uh, Roy, the Roycroft community, who was sort of I think the original bourgeois bohemian. You know, he walked around in these these fancy hats and cloaks and and. Uh, Basically tried to pass himself off as uh, just like any other Greenwich Village Bohemian, but he had a very very sharp commercial sense. So the the I think what you could call the yeah the co-optation or the incorporation of Bohemia has been going on since the late 19th century. 
which is why I'm 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 always a bit suspicious of Bohemian claims to be anti-capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, take us up to middle of the century, the triumph of of um, American capitalism is the moral wonder of the world as mm -hmm. pronounced by Henry Luce in the American century in 1941. Right. right. Well, Henry Luce's American century is, I think, a kind of epistle to the Americans. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very deeply Presbyterian document, right? Uh, you know, Luce's parents were both Presbyterian missionaries, and and that's inflect that inflects everything in that in that essay. Yeah, this is where Luce essentially announces that the United States is going to be the superpower for the rest of the for the rest of the century, and um, that our way of life is going to basically be imposed upon the rest of the world, either gently or through force, and. Luce very clearly believes that this is the culmination of a kind of providential destiny. Um, to to read that is not simply, I think, to read a a diplomatic or, or political document. the The American century is a religious document, I think, fundamentally. Well, it it also and, and it gets picked up. I mean, it also gets picked up by Fortune magazine. Yes, the, yeah. the you know the magazine that he created. And so 10 years later, when you get a uh, kind of a, uh, a looking back by the editors of Fortune in 1951, uh, they call it uh, USA, the Permanent Revolution, you, you still get these references to, to capitalism being uh, about not really about material stuff, but about the spirit, uh, you know, about spiritual matters. Yeah. And the reason that uh, we have to spread American capitalist civilization and the reason that we have to fight, of course, godless communism is that uh, the, the American century, the American spirit is, in fact, uh, a spiritual mission. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a there's a really funny scene in um, a 1951 Nancy Mitford novel. There's a there's an American sitting at a dinner table. And he's talking about uh, every co every Coca-Cola bottle has a gene or a spirit inside of it, right? And that spirit is going to come out uh, wherever anyone drinks a bottle of Coca-Cola, and they're going to be somehow injected with the American spirit. Now, that that's a kind of sacramental understanding of, of products, that, that products, again, aren't just products. They are conveyors or vessels. Oh, well, that's what, yeah, but that's... That's the way it's sold with, you know, celebrities holding bottles of perfume or basketball yes. sneakers and imparting to the sneaker their personal touch, their yes. spirit. I mean, they're, you know, they're like the <laughs> little household gods of the Romans. Yeah, you know, anthropologists have a name for this. It's called mana. Uh, it's, uh, there, there's uh, Marcel Mauss's The Gift is, is one of the great, uh, documents uh, explaining what mana is. Yeah, you have a spirit, and if you give something to somebody, you give the spirit to them and a bit of your spirit, and you have to circulate this, and you have to circulate it in, in a special way. Yeah, and, uh, you, and you become a brand, and that, mean, that means yes. you're immortal. Yes. Go Brands ahead. are essentially, I think, uh, you know, quotation marks, secular forms of totemism. Uh, yeah. You know, Durkheim talks about this in the elementary forms of religious life. I, I think that's basically what the Starbucks uh, brand is. It's a totem. All right, so let's... From a, from a soulful corporation. Okay, let us move now forward to 
you talk about the years 1980 to the present, mm -hmm. the last 40 years where we mm -hmm. sink so deeply in, into the worship of money that, that there's, there's no other value anywhere on the horizon, and, and we end up with the Trump and, and the stupefied plutocracy currently in power in Washington. Right. Yeah, this is the this is the neoliberal consensus that I that I was talking about at the beginning. Um, yeah, it's it. I think it it stems partly from transformations within capitalism itself, uh, the the almost complete destruction of labor unions. Um, the uh, another thing that Thomas Frank talks about, which is basically the the capitulation of the Democratic Party to this to this neoliberal consensus. You know, you, you even though there's been a lot of popular and even sometimes what's called populist critique of what's happened in the last 30 to 40 years, at least among Democrats, in my view, this has been utterly feckless. You know, you get you get people like Bill and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, who are very faithful stewards of of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, they they themselves worship the enchantments of money and digital technology. They're they're very clear about this. Um, they're they're meritocrats, meaning merit. It seems to be meaning um, <laughs> the ability to contribute to the accumulation of capital. So I don't I don't see any any anybody associated with the Clintons or Obama or that wing of the party as being able to even imagine doing anything about this. When you look at somebody like Donald Trump, um, you know, when you, when you, you just have to look at that phrase, make America great again, it's, there's an effort here to revive the promise of capitalism, not to challenge it. Um, and especially to revive the promise of capitalism from a time when, you know, the wages, what W.E.B. Du Bois called the wages of whiteness, still had great purchasing power, and you could add the wages of masculinity at the same time. I think one of the problems that I often have with uh, certain kinds of what are called progressive uh, criticisms of capitalism is that they'll, they'll use phrases like uh, taking back the American dream as though you know, the American dream is, not, is, is something that you want to take back rather than awaken from it and possibly repudiate it. So I think right now the the the, the array of political forces um, is is very heavily weighed against any any kind of anti-capitalist vision. Uh, what, what now that's not to say that's not to say that I don't think you you it does have some political strength. You know, certainly when you have figures like Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Who are so popular that that says something. But I I think even that Bernie Sanders, uh, even his 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 vision is still too much indebted to a certain kind of socialist productivism. Um, you know, he's a social. I think he's a social democrat, not a not a socialist. So I think that that Sanders really is committed to a kind of um, re-regulated capitalism. You know, it, it's kind of sort of 1950s, a somewhat more leftist version of, of 1950s Democratic Party is, is, is what I think Sanders represents. I think the problem here is that progressives themselves still have this kind of Marxist view that uh, capitalist industry is going to give us the tools with which we will build a better civilization. 
And I think even that assumption has to be questioned. Uh, so while I'm very much in favor of you know what's often called a Green New Deal, I think we have to start thinking about something that's much deeper and broader. Um, and here, I guess on this point, I'll invoke the the British economist E.F. Schumacher, who I think was a kind of romantic in his way. Now, Schumacher is often dismissed as a kind of guru of the you know granola and Birkenstock set, and I, I think that's very unfair to him because. He was an economist who who challenged some of the fundamental principles of his own discipline, and I and I think he he definitely needs to be reread at a time like this. When you have people like David Graeber, you know, writing in the New York Review of Books about how utterly worthless a lot of economic economics really is, I, I think Schumacher would would bear rereading. And what he's talking about in many ways is uh, not just economic justice, but also what he calls metaphysical reconstruction. I, I think people on the left have to start asking themselves very fundamental questions again about what is the world? What is our place in it? Um, these are, I think, what could be called pre-political questions, but they have very, very profound political implications well, aren't uh, there, aren't, in how you answer them. Don't you take a little hope at in those kind of questions being asked, because those are the kind of questions that are being raised by people concerned about climate change. Yes, yes. I mean, Which the, the reenchantment of nature mm -hmm. and asking a, what is our place in the world is are the questions that are coming out of the, the, the climate change concern. Yeah, which is why I think that these kinds of ecological concerns are, are going to be the, uh, in, a, in a sense, the way in which we do start getting the left to ask, ask these questions. Yeah. And not just ecological concerns in the sense of um, how do we consume less, which, which is, I think, what, what often gets reduced, how these questions get reduced, but how do, how do we produce um, what kind of a life do we want? What kind of a common life do we envision? How do we think about human flourishing uh, in, its, in its broadest possible way? Yeah, I do think that the ecological movement uh, holds the key to, to our re-asking these questions. Um, I, I don't think it's just going to be a reliance on socialist or, or traditional socialist or social democratic discourse. It's, it's going to have to, in some ways, come from the ecological movement. And as far as, you know, religious institutions themselves are concerned, I, I mean, look, I say this as a Christian, I, I wouldn't expect too much from these people. I think that most denominational religion in this country has been bought and paid for. Uh, I don't think you're going to get much prophetic resistance from those quarters. No, so no, no. I mean, one, you know, that's Martin Luther's objection to the papacy, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Oh. Yeah, I mean, they're just too much a part of the established order. They're not. Yeah. They're not going to raise any questions about no. that. No, I don't think so. Well, listen, I think this is a wonderful book, Gene. I really do, and and I hope that people listening to this broadcast will will read it and, and take it to heart because it's as clear an explanation as I've read as why and how we have gotten to where we are today. So thank you very much, Gene. Well, thank you, and I hope so. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, thanks. I, I, got, I got to ask you, you got to go read my own book, Money in Class. Have you ever read that?
Yes, I have. Yeah, well, yes, I, mean, I have. There it is. You know, that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about. The worship of Mammon. I mean, that's man. I don't. Mean. I don't know how we're going to break the spell, but we got to do it. Yeah, it's going to kill us all. No, no, it it will. No, it no. Will. I mean, that's what capitalism. That that's its metier. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.